This is the Mornington Peninsula Regional Galleries Conversation Series, Episode 16. We are talking to 2018 National Works on Paper finalist, Rosie Weiss. Hello and welcome to the Mornington Peninsula Regional Galleries Conversation Series, a podcast for people curious about art and the lives of artists. In this episode, Senior Curator Danny Lacey talks to Rosie Weiss, whose work, Two Banksias Holding On, was acquired for the MPRG collection in the 2018 National Works on Paper. Rosie Weiss is a Mornington Peninsula-based artist and educator. In 1992, she won the Moe and Shandon Australian Art Fellowship. Rosie talks about her diaristic approach to her work, her interest in the environment, and how she makes sense of the world through her art. Hear about her first teaching job at Pentridge, instructing life drawing in Saudi Arabia, and her work with the Rosebud West Women's Group. Thanks for joining us today, Rosie. It's a pleasure. I want to start by asking you if you were creative growing up and what inspired you to become an artist? Well, my parents met at life drawing class, so that sort of sets the scene that it was a supportive environment. My mother early on had studied and was a graphic designer and my father was a painter of botanical minutiae in the landscape. And so, yes, they're both very supportive. I didn't necessarily think I was going to be an artist, but I was involved with a lot of art. I mean, I saw a lot of exhibitions very early on, was, you know, frightened by Arthur Boyd and all sorts of things like that. And about 13, my mother encouraged me to put a drawing into an ABC radio art competition. And I did, and I won it. And it was a drawing of my garden at home, which was a pretty wild, planted native garden in suburbia, which my father, or both parents actually, but he'd sourced all the plants from the bush. There weren't very many nurseries in those days. And John Olson was the judge and he spoke on radio about my work and it was pretty amazing to hear someone, an older artist who I'd never met, saying things about my work and I I was blown out by the whole thing and my mother managed to get the transcript for me so I've still got it. So it's this marvellous little bit of writing from when I was 13 so I think that actually helped but lots of things along the way helped. My father taught me a little bit about drawing, went off to life drawing class at a place called The Hut in Ferntree Gully when I was about 16 and we used to have a sherry halfway through. It was my first alcohol, I think. It was great. And uh, then my godfather taught me some life drawing as well, Geoffrey Goldie, who's an artist in Melbourne. And so all of those things kind of, I think, add up. And it was a sort of a weird childhood without much access to popular culture. In fact, virtually none. You know, there was no TV and I didn't see very many films, I think two in my childhood. I'm still trying to make up for it. And I'm not quite sure why we were so cut off, but we were. And I made sense of the world through art. And I think that I've just kept that habit going, really. So, yeah, I think it was supportive. I mean, my, all my brothers, one involved in art and the other two in communication, but... I think they had the opportunity to explore their things as well. So, And what were some of the biggest influences on your earlier career into your sort of late teens and early 20s? I think I met a few people at the right time and was really lucky. There were a few moments growing up where I was surprised by what women could do 
and uh, we went to visit Alistair Knox and his wife, I think it was Margot Knox, was probably about eight months pregnant, down on her hands and knees, mosaicing a giant courtyard. And that was one of those light bulb moments for me and I just thought, oh, my goodness, I can do anything. Women can do anything. And then going off to study, meeting people like Herta Klugpot, who taught me printmaking, gave me a love of printmaking. I never thought that I would be interested. I'd never really tried it before. She was great, but uh, leaving, studying and discovering the Victorian Print Workshop or the Australian Print Workshop in its first incarnation in North Melbourne and sort of working in the old meat safes, making lithographs on big pieces of limestone, encouraged by John Lone. And that was a really great period of discovery. And then because I lived a few houses away, I had a little house by myself and... I was able to take home the plates sometimes at night, the zinc plate, zinc, I can't remember, the coated plates that you could make lithographs on. And I was doing one of my botanical kind of drawings from some dead succulents that a friend had given me. And I'd been working on it for weeks and then I had some big emotional bust up or something. And so I finished it off, but in a very kind of aggressive and different way to normal. And I took it back into the workshop the next day and I had the plate in one hand and terps in the other hand and I was going to wipe the image off. And Neil Leveson came along and took the plate from one hand, you know, came behind me and removed both items and, uh, and said, leave this with me. I didn't know what he was doing with it. He printed it and sold a copy to the ANG. And I thought, wow, you know, maybe this work where I don't have complete control, where I'm allowing other things to be involved in it, maybe there's something happening here. And it was kind of the key, I think, for me to relax into maybe a more diaristic approach to my work where I felt I could bring my life into the work and I probably haven't looked back in some senses from that. But there were, along the way, early on, some important moments. I started to do a postgraduate in printmaking and lithography. I'd spent three months on one image, this tiny little 10-centimetre square image of a, <laughs> of a fern kind of unfolding, like the inside part of the fern. And I had a shoot um, with Ewan Heng. And Ewan, I can't do the Scottish accent, so I won't, but... He said something like, you know, he loved the image, but, you know, it needed to be like 50 times bigger sort of thing. And I thought, wow, he's so right, you know. And I I just left. I never went back. I never completed it. I bought a huge roll of ash and a roll of paper and uh, stapled it to every wall of my house and did my first show. So all of those things, I think, were just lucky moments where people came at the right second or I was ready to listen or something. But I think the other thread for me in all of that was an interest in the environment, probably because of my father. He was a president of the Native Plants Association and on weekends we'd have to go and, you know, weed the yu-yangs and stuff like that as kids. And in teenagehood I became part of an environment group called INSPECT. We tried to save bits of land and do stuff. And so going on into becoming an artist... That was the, the thing that kept dragging me back. I kept wanting to make work about environmental changes. I kind of felt that maybe I could have as much of an effect as an artist, as an activist, although I'm not actually sure if that's true. But I keep trying. And when I'm making the work, I'm convinced at the time when I'm drawing that I'm doing the right thing. But anyway, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, 
You won the Moe and Shandon Australian Art Fellowship in 1992 with a painting titled Lung. What was this experience like and what impact did this have on your practice as an artist? It was an absolutely overwhelming experience. I just couldn't believe it and uh, took me a bit. I had to be shown the catalogue with my image of the lung on the front before I believed it. They had to open the box up, you know, because I was really hoping to get into the travelling show. So to go to Europe for me for the first time and for a whole year was an incredible gift and changed my work in ways that I would never have imagined and me as a person, but it was also a really hard thing to deal with the media which I didn't even understand what the media was. I didn't even know what electronic media was, you know. And so that was a very steep learning curve. And luckily I didn't actually believe any of the hype, otherwise I could have turned into some kind of weird monster. But to be there and to be able to look at, you know, history of Western art and have access to Europe was amazing and to have access to my family because my father's from Germany and to meet them all for the first time and to meet my husband's family for the first time. So it was incredible and I made a show called Arborigenealogique that looked at family trees but also looked at global family trees and it was just amazing to be in the studio every day. I'd never experienced that before, not having to do another job. To have that as the job, that was the biggest treat really and it changes the way you work. So. At that time, I would make things using belt sanders and loud machines when I was in Australia and I went there and I had time to carve by hand and explore things in a completely different way. But probably even more than that, it was the perspective that you get from being away from home and thinking, oh, you know, we're actually okay here. You know, that cultural cringe that I might have felt still slightly was evaporated when I went to Europe. Yeah, that was a lovely thing to happen, to think, oh, we're actually making some really good work here and some really fresh work here. And maybe we're quite lucky in some ways to have that freedom. So, yeah, that was good. And for a number of years, you taught painting at Monash Uni and RMIT, and you've been involved in delivering art workshops in some pretty interesting places, including Saudi Arabia and Greece. How do you see these activities in relationship to your art practice? Yeah, I find that question really an interesting question and one that I don't know if I've asked myself before because Saudi Arabia and Greece were the pinnacle of a career that was actually... I did some very strange teaching jobs along the way. Um, Not strange, but ones that I never expected to happen. I mean, my first job was at Pentridge and I taught drawing in the psychiatric division there And that was an amazing way to start teaching. And straight off, I realised that drawing was freedom. And it was freedom for these guys. As long as I was there and we were talking and they were drawing, they weren't in jail anymore. And they had that time off, you know. And they really looked forward to it. They flushed their medication down the toilet the day I came, you know. But it did take about nine months before, you know, some people would start to draw what they thought was over the wall or whatever and they'd start to accept where they really were and not just be an escapist sort of mode. But that was really interesting and I went on to work in places like Aboriginal Education in Fitzroy and I learnt more than they did. And there was great intensity in that kind of teaching And then to go on, I mean, I worked in schools, I worked 
in um, alternative schools where I would often be given one or two people to work with for the day. And that was really because the only way to reach these people was through drawing or making little films or, you know, animate with plasticine and all that sort of stuff. And then to go on to working in tertiary institutions, that was a real treat, you know, to work with people who were really so dedicated to their future and to help people find their direction. I guess that's the most exciting part of the whole thing. But when you mentioned Saudi, that in many ways was the most exciting teaching I've ever done. And I don't know if that's because it was frightening over there. There was an element of that for sure, you know. I mean, apart from having to wear the bayah, which is, you know, the black thing with the scarf, which I never learnt to do up properly and was constantly falling off, going around in a country where women are not free is quite an amazing thing and I'm really glad that it's changing and that some of those wonderful women that I worked with will actually be able to drive a car, um, I think probably by now. But, yeah, working there, we thought I was asked to... This is with Monash and Princess Noura University that we were being asked to deliver a life drawing component. We thought afterwards that perhaps they actually meant artistic anatomy, sort of out of a book kind of thing. But anyway, we delivered this life drawing with a clothes model with Marion Crawford, the printmaker and lecturer, as the model. And as we started off, they were drawing her hands first and later her face, and they said, oh, she has the most beautiful face we've ever seen, you know. And I said, have you drawn your own face? And they said, no. These were teachers doing an in-service and they were from Saudi Arabia, from Egypt, really skilled teachers. They had never drawn their own face, well, because it was illegal, I suppose. And so they went home and did their self-portraits at home and came back and spent a few days working on self-portraits. And they were the most beautiful self-portraits. And the layers of unravelling that were going on in that room, afterwards I felt that I'd never needed to teach again. <laughs> <laughs> that it had all happened in that one space and we really hoped that they were able to keep it going, that we left them with enough examples and enough ways of working with the body that they'll be able to teach it. But they may have been banned, but we hope it can keep going. It was a great project that Monash did over a number of years, going backwards and forwards in all areas, you know, not just in drawing. Now, your recent work, uh, and in particular the series The Trees Are Falling Into the Sea and Other Stories, looks at the changing landscape and the impacts of climate change and human impact on the natural environment. What was the reason you decided to focus on this subject matter? Uh, well, I had been working with it for a long time and then I was able to spend a bit of time at Police Point at the residency down there at Point Nepean and it was over the winter so there was some pretty bad weather going on and I had my push bike and so every day I made a trip down to observatory point and every day I was documenting literally the trees falling into the sea. Um, I didn't know what I was going to be doing down there. I, th I was just going to see what happened, you know, but this is what happened and the beach closure signs said closed due to extreme erosion event. And when I spoke with Parks Victoria about that, they said, oh, no, this happens every year. And I rang back a second time because I didn't believe them. And the next person I got said, well, that's the official line. So I thought, well, OK, I'll just keep documenting this. And I f was finding lots of fragments of moonas and grasses and you know, tea tree, everything that was falling in. It was falling in so fast I couldn't actually document it before it went out to sea. So 
you know, one day I'd see something halfway down the sand and the next day it was gone. So it was pretty ferocious. So I continued that. I had a little show at Police Point and that was interesting. And then I thought I'll keep working with this and I went right round Port Phillip Bay and that became that show that you're talking about, that body of work. Because even though everyone was aware that Portsea Beach has gone, no one talks about what's happened on the other side of the bay. And if you go across to Point Lonsdale, just straight across, it's happening at Point Lonsdale. And the Point Lonsdale people have put what's called a Fluker post there by a man called Fluker has designed these posts that you can put your mobile phone in them and take an image and then send that image in and they're compiling these images together to see what's going on. So it's a community monitoring process and there's another one going in at Summers, they're going in all around the place. And so it wasn't my imagination, you know. I think that's the thing. I thought maybe I'm just imagining this. Maybe this does happen every year, you know. But no, I wasn't. So I went round and discovered parts of Port Phillip Bay that I'd never been to or seen before. I didn't walk the whole thing, but I went to as many spots as I could get to. And in fact, I made 52 drawings to represent time, but I don't think anyone noticed that. Just me, but that made me happy. And your work, which is a finalist in the National Works on Paper exhibition, is called Two Banksias Holding On. Can you describe this work and talk about the ideas behind that work? The two Banksias in question live across the road from the Rye supermarket, actually, and they're not from my imagination. And I've been documenting them, just photographing them and drawing them for probably four or five years as they slowly are eroded and from the reading that I've done, I think what's happening is that they're connected, their root systems are connected to some other banksias that are further back and I think maybe nutrients are being shared because otherwise I don't know how they're surviving because every time you visit them, especially in the winter, it gets frightening. They seem to hold on to each other tighter and tighter but it's not always easy to visit them because they seem to have become a bit famous and... People come and sit there in front of them and look out to sea or they play guitar there. or There's an atmosphere. It's almost like they're in love, these two banksias, and, they're, and, they're, and their feeling is going out into the atmosphere. So I wanted to do a drawing of them and I couldn't take them home. You know, this was the hard part for me because normally I take the objects home and work with them on my desk. So uh, it's the first time I've actually used an iPad and made some films and done that sort of thing to have this material. And then I always have to then let the material go again for the drawing to come together. But that's where that piece comes from. Mm, Great. And can you tell us about the work you've been doing with the West Rosebud Women's Drawing Group over the past five years? I've actually worked with them for about eight years. Okay. And it was... uh, project started by Joan Kerner with money from the state government to help sort of disadvantaged communities around Victoria and West Rosebud was seen as one of these communities and they started doing a project with these women where they were painting mural and then someone came to me and said can you think of something that we could do next with them to extend it because this mural project's been really good for them and I said oh I'd be happy to teach life drawing and so it's gone through a number of stages. At first we had a healthcare worker with us and and there were a number of people there who had suffered some form of domestic violence. And luckily I didn't know who was who because we had a healthcare worker and I was able to deliver 
the sort of level of instruction that I would deliver to any university. And I was really happy that people who, some of whom had left school at 15, could come and be part of this class with a $10 donation. That's all I had to do. And so people have stayed for eight years. They don't actually um, graduate. Not everybody, of course. Some people have come just for a few weeks. But there's a core group, and a lot of them are ex-art teachers and all kinds of people come. And it is an opportunity for people to not only learn to draw but to have a supportive community around them. But I find that people go into sort of almost a deep meditative state when they're concentrating so hard. They're sort of totally relaxed and totally exhausted at the end. But I think it's really good for them. It's good for me too. I've learned a lot. I've never had students that didn't graduate before, so we've become friends, you know. And finally, what advice would you give to artists just starting out in their careers? Well, it's interesting, actually, because I have a daughter who's 22, my oldest daughter, who's just starting out in a drama career. And it's the same sort of advice that I'd give her that I'd give to any young artist, I think, is that you probably need to make work that you really want to make, not work that someone else thinks might be the right thing for you to do, but things that really affect you. And you probably need to get work out into group shows as fast as you can, even if that means becoming a curator or whatever it takes to network and get out there. But also that it's a lifetime, you know, you're an artist for a lifetime, so it doesn't all have to happen straight away that your day job might end up being the inspiration for the work in the future kind of thing. So I don't think it's easy, you know, being a young artist at all. But from what I see, there's some fantastic work going on. So it's all happening out there. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Rosie, and congratulations on being a finalist in the National Works on Paper. Thank you very much, Danny. Thanks for listening to episode 16 of our conversation series. Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery is the region's major cultural facility and is supported by Mornington Peninsula Shire and other partners. Visit mprg.mornpen.vic.gov.au to find out about our latest exhibitions and events. Our 2018 podcast program is supported by the Gordon Darling Foundation. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode.